0: Um, welcome everyone to the Sport and History podcast. Um, as the postgraduate and early career researchers representative on the board, um, my aim is to bring you more talks to our members uh, to showcase the fabulous research that's going on. Um, I also hope to chat with people who have advice or opportunities for postgraduate and early career researcher members as well. So if you're interested in chatting with me, then please feel free to drop me an email. Uh, my details can be found on the BSSH website under Casey Taylor uh, under the rep. Um, also just a, a reminder for all our, uh, all our members that we've actually now got a Facebook group for postgraduate and early career researcher members. So membership of that group isn't just solely for those members, for postgrads and ECRs, but actually for academics of all levels. Uh, and the aim behind that Facebook group is to create a supportive, friendly space, uh, provide advice, promote your research um, and update members on news that might be relevant to them. So check it out um, and um, click on join the group if you are if interested. So, today's podcast features Dr. Verity Postlethwaite. Verity is an independent researcher based in the United Kingdom who works between academic and industry con- contracts. Verity's research explores relationships between sport and society in national and international contexts, and recent projects have involved sports diplomacy in the Commonwealth, sport and equality in Scotland, and a Lawn Tennis Association governance review of county and island associations in England. Verity's doctoral thesis was titled, How is the legacy aimed to inspire a generation, Affected policy associated with young people and sport between the bid, planning, delivery and ongoing legacy of London 2012? So it's good to have you with us, Verity.
1: Yeah, thanks, Katie. It's uh, it's novel to to have the doctor in front of my name. It's uh, the first sort of public engagement um, I've done since it's it's come into <laughs> into fruition. So that was quite nice to hear. Yes, thanks for having me, and lovely to contribute.
0: Yeah, it's important to make sure that we use these titles. It's uh, definitely been a been a thing recently. So go just talk a little bit about your thesis. Can you just tell us a little bit about what it was about, kind of what you concluded, things like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have an interdisciplinary uh, background, um, and history has played a role in some form in that uh, interdisciplinary uh, upbringing, and to the point that I got um, to my uh, doctoral research, um, I adopted um, different disciplinary perspectives um, on particular concepts like policy, legacy, and sort of an overarching understanding of power. But to really understand that, I had to get my head round the chronology of London 2012 and the Inspire Generation Legacy Aim. And that's where adopting some um, historical mechanisms and approaches to, to the formation of research really helped me um, unpick and be able to actually achieve <laughs> the thesis in the end. Um, so, although it's quite a contemporary context, um, and some people would argue London 2012 is not history, um, but it's certainly, uh, I adopted historical aspects and used um, different historical um, mechanisms, like I adopted a genealogical framework and I presented my findings in discussion. Um, in a chronological manner um, as London 2012 spans from the late 1990s, early 2000s, right the way up to uh, 2013 when the Organising Committee disbanded and arguably still into the um, post-London 2012 epoch where there were some big public inquiries and ongoing activity that's connected to uh, legacy um, activities. Um, So it crosses over two or three decades um which as I'm sure you can relate to you have to somehow get your head around where to bring that in and how to present it.
0: Yeah absolutely I mean what I um enjoyed reading I when I when I read it there were things that kind of stood out for me as someone who's kind of taught um A-level PE um because things like PESL and PESIPS and those sorts of things I remember having to to teach all my students what they all were and these different kind of things to kind of get your head around and uh, stuff like that but and they didn't they never enjoy just learning acronyms and what these things were but on a positive side the get set program which features really heavily uh, in your thesis and obviously that was in uh, educational establishments so I remember it um, in our college because we did a lot of things around the olympics and paralympic values which is what a lot of get set was about but it kind of felt that and we put the slogans on everything and we could use the logo on stuff um, and each of our sports teams were given a particular Paralympic or Olympic value that they were supposed to promote that year. Um, There's kind of a feeling that I guess once the Olympics have finished, it kind of died a little bit with it. You know, we had a the torch relay literally went past the, the road at the, at the end of our road where our college was. Um, but after it kind of London 2012 finished that kind of ended so is that sort of thing that that you found that in terms of the legacy associated with it as similar similar issues?
1: Yes yeah definitely I think what you've just painted there is um, hits on a really important aspect of my thesis is that The Inspire Generation Legacy Aim and London 2012 was given to everyone. (laughs) The narrative, the slogans, the branding, there was this idea, and in the the sort of positive narratives, was that everyone owned it, and the attempt was that everyone could have a piece of it, whether it was the delivery of Get Set in schools or further education, um, right the way through to. Uh, not-for-profit organisations being able to, you know, host something around the torch relay, and um, right the way to the epicentre of of the London village and that really cute hosting period. Um, but one of the big findings um, of of my um, thesis and one of my arguments is is that this was very much. A restricted freedom <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a regulated freedom, um, because as you alluded to in a few of your comments, um, ownership is huge in terms of policy and legacy discourses. Um, and in terms of Get Set, that was owned by the London Organising Committee for the Olympic Games, and it was restricted um, in its use of logos and its time frame to its custodians which are the Olymp- International Olympic Committee um, and to an extent the International Paralympic Committee um, and then to the British Olympic Association and to an extent the British Paralympic Association. So Get Set was very much tied and restricted to how it could be used and when. Um, whereas the Inspire Generation Legacy Aim was actually more pushed by the Blair government when Tessa Jowell um, was Minister for um, sport and legacy. I think the acronym connected to that is, is Crackers, let alone the concurrent physical education policies at the time. Um, and the, the Inspire Generation Legacy aim was kind of a catch all to what was a very messy governance structure to how the UK government the education sector, the sports sector, and all of those other governing actors, for example sponsors, or youth sport trust, or schools themselves, could interact and interpret what the Inspire A Generation Legacy was for them, and how they could maximise the benefit from it. Um, So some of the more successful organisations, in my findings, were those that recognised that regulated freedom and the difference between the sports organizations and the organizing committee and the government and the domestic sort of piece and they kind of sat somewhere in the middle uh, so for example um, the welcome trust had a fabulous iteration of the values in olympic and Paralympic values the get set program and they got quite a lot of benefit out of it um, It was quite a niche program but they very much understood and sat between whereas for a school or a college it's quite difficult to get your head around the little P politics of all that left alone for a student pupil young person to to understand that and um, so I must admit I spent two solid years trying to get my head around that um, and the other absolute clangor that comes into it is that in 2008 there was a uh, recession and in 2010 there was a very significant government change yeah <laughs> yeah so I'm I mean, laughing now but many nights of tears yeah I bet
0: <laughs> I can imagine um yeah like you said the get set program I remember that we just had to all of a sudden that there was a point in which like we had to take all the logos off and you couldn't use anything anymore and it was all kind of that was it but Um, yeah
1: yeah but specifically to answer your question um since 2013 when um get set was wound down it was handed over to the british olympic association as the official custodian Um, and they have um franchised it out into different programs that have had different forms of sponsorship or different um, agendas connected to it so for example there's been a program um around Get Set with um, UK anti-doping to disseminate um, sort of sport ethics and um, sport and drugs and performance enhancing drugs to young people. Um, There's been a couple of Get Set programs to tie in with Rio, Summer Games, Pyeongchang, uh, Winters, and and Get Set for Tokyo. When Tokyo happened, we're still not sure. Um, And then other ones connected to food and Aldi. So there have been iterations afterwards, but nowhere near to the scale of the original London Organising Committee version of um, Get Set. Um, So it it has carried on, but to the extent it's kind of been in pockets and connected to bits of, of sponsorship or endorsement, which in itself, Aligns to um, a very common criticism or critique of the International Olympic Committee and its its satellite organisations that it's it's very market orientated and it's very much how it can protect its branding, protect its yeah. logo, but also maintain its income stream. And um, so, yeah, which which many people will be chuckling away to when they're listening to this. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt.
0: Um, obviously, you mentioned Tokyo there. Presumably your research has got, you know, can future host cities could learn something from your research. What do you think those cities like Tokyo and beyond could could take away from your research?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Thanks, Katie. And it links to the second major sort of argument finding of my thesis, which is around um, the Paralympics and the Paralympic values. Um, It was really nice to hear you Experience that you differentiated between Olympic and Paralympic values as many people often conflate them and conflate the two organizations and the two agendas. Um, but as hopefully most people will be aware of now, London 2012 was a huge platform um, for the British Paralympic Committee, the International Paralympic Committee. And other disability organisations um, developing their identity and developing their stature in this messy governance of sport mega events and young people. Um, so the the projects that I did with Japan um, and um, it did intersect with the with the organising committee in Tokyo was around how Tokyo and um, interested governing actors around. Um, the Paralympics in Tokyo could mirror or try to emulate similar successes in developing sport, as they call it, in Japan um, and developing the identity and stature of sport organisations off of the back of hosting. So I wasn't necessarily um, in Tokyo and Japan to say how the Games should be run. It was actually they were trying to um, transfer knowledge and experience from London how to turbocharge the legacy of the Paralympic and Parasport aspects, um, which in itself is, is interesting. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to be out there for four months um, and it was nice to be able to use sort of my findings um, with people but it was also quite terrifying as you're seen as an expert and you're like oh crikey this could go horribly wrong for you please don't <laughs> so it's quite nice to have the fail safe that this was an ongoing <laughs> and emerging thing but yeah the paralympics was was the reason why i was in japan
0: and i mean what was that experience like i mean how did it all come about and what was it like kind of spending time in a completely different country and culture and all those sorts of things
1: Yep, um, the first sort of very open and honest thing is that, and I'm sure you can relate to as a fellow uh, postgraduate student slash early career researcher, is that you have to demonstrate that your research is fundable <laughs> and that you have impact strategies and um, out dissemination pathways. Um, so, towards the end of my PhD, um, and because the University of Worcester had an ongoing partnership with a Japanese university, I was eligible to apply for um, the Japan Society for the promotion of science um, funding for pre and postdoctoral students. Um, so the, the eligibility is based on having a substantive partnership already with the Japanese university, um, substantive partnership with a UK university, and then a feasible and um, attractive research idea. And um, so that's kind of how it came about. My motives was both interest, but also I knew that this would be something that would be really useful for my career aspirations of heading into more research and, and academia. Um, what I didn't anticipate, and what I wanted to mention on this podcast was um, how history would play such a large role. As I went over there anticipating, speaking about Tokyo 2020 2021, um, but in actual fact, spent a lot of time um, researching the history of Parasport and Paralympics in Japan um, and in particular, the Games um, in 1964. So I ended up utilizing my historical methods and historical sort of strengths to really contextualize and understand Tokyo's and Japan's relationship with Parasport. Um, from 64 through to the Nagano Games in the 90s, which also had um, the Winter Paralympic Games, and then to the bidding of Tokyo. And um, so that was really, really lovely. And then to your final point about the experience, um, Japan is crackers, like, it's brilliant. It's, it's by far, fairly well-traveled, and it's by far the most interesting uh, place to spend both in terms of research and as, and as a tourist, I had some incredible experiences from Tokyo Disney to the National Diet Library to the home of Parasport in in different um, prefectures to Tokyo. So honestly, it was, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I do hope to get back out there pending travel restrictions. Um, so all in all, it was a real success. And is still paying dividends for me um, and for the people that I worked with, which is which is nice.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's excellent. Are you still working on that kind of similar research, or are you working on something different at the moment?
1: Yes, uh, one of my biggest weaknesses is that I have wear many hats at the moment, um, and yes, I am still working on uh, bits from Japan, um, but more on the formal outputs from the fellowship. Um, so I've, I'm working with a colleague at SOAS University of London to put together um, a handbook of sports in Japan uh, with the aim of bringing together Western scholars and um, Japanese scholars and practitioners. Um, so that's been commissioned and I'm currently uh, editing editing that. Yeah, that's <laughs>
0: excellent.
1: Um, pardon? That's excellent. Yeah, no, I'm really just fired. Um but I'm also also working, as you said before, working on a couple of, of contracts. So I have a couple of teaching contracts um, and I have a couple of um, research. Well, the dividends that Japan's playing, um, and it sounds a bit cliche and philosophical, is that Japan really ruptured my understanding of how politics, policy, hosting a sport mega event functions, and also the history behind that. Because I was so UK-centric and so Western-centric that I think the biggest dividend that I'm using my experience in Japan for at the moment, beyond the formal outputs, is really coming at projects with with different lenses and not just making standard UK-based assumptions yeah. on certain things. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment.
0: And obviously, I mean, you alluded to the fact that obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and no one can kind of travel anywhere and those sorts of things. And I guess that's a problem for a lot of early career researchers and postgraduate students at the moment is how disruptive that can be to research. So how have you kind of managed to actually keep your research going during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, And in all honesty, I, I don't think there is a right answer. And I've seen some fantastic mechanisms via um, Twitter and some of the um, you know stuff that you've been doing with the BSSH and sharing ideas what's quite nice is is the pandemic allows you to breathe and actually look and listen to what different people are doing Um, so that's been quite nice I have taken a bit of a step back Um, in terms of putting stuff together, I'm quite fortunate because I have my PhD thesis and all of my data from Japan, I'm quite fortunate that I've been able to focus on that. In terms of projects that have needed for me to data collect um, during the pandemic, um, there's been sort of the typical shift of um, face-to-face meetings to virtual forums, such as the the one that we're using now, so I've used Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, Zoom, um, you name it. We've we've had to use it. Uh, online surveys. Um, we've been um, where projects have needed different stakeholders to find consensus. We've been playing around with a couple of um, Delphi methods surveys. So it's really pushed outside the box to what your normal practice would be. And then in terms of some of my ongoing um, academic and historical data collection, it's been quite nice because it's forced me to out of my routine. um, And I've been really focusing on um, digitized collections, uh, especially some newspaper and media collections that are all online. Um, And then also, I know a lot of the archives and collections I've been in contact with have been really receptive to digitizing specific Pieces that I want to view, or starting to write sort of quite easy access blogs to describe what they have, and um, so then people can request digitising of materials. And um, so those are com- some of the ways that I've kind of been negotiating the pandemic. But I, I must be, you know, upfront, I've been really fortunate in 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 relation to other people and where their research is at.
0: Yeah, I think it is worth remembering that archivists quite often want their stuff to be seen um and they'll be quite keen to probably digitize stuff or photocopy or scan stuff i mean i had a similar sort of thing even before the pandemic there was this one little thing in texas that i wanted to see and i wasn't going to travel to texas to go and see it but you get in contact and they you know they scan it for you for whatever kind of fee and just email it to you and it's like it's um incredibly helpful and what this pandemic might do i suppose is actually Help, kind of connections between people and finding new ways of working, which can probably exist afterwards as well. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah, hard. absolutely. And one thing I was really fortunate last year is I applied for the BSSH uh, Early Career Researcher Award to travel to a Scottish archive, um, and the plan was to go uh, last March, March twenty twenty, <laughs> and then still, still got an email thread with, with Carl at the archives about when I'm <laughs> going to visit. but what that has meant is I think that when I do travel to the to the collection at the University of Stirling actually is where I'll be heading to when I do travel to that collection I think it will be a far more effective and efficient visit because I've done so much more preparation and worked with the archivists to what they have um available and what they have that would be useful so I, I completely take the point that it'll streamline some ways of working Um, I don't think for a second that it'll replace or uh, erode some traditional practices, but I absolutely take your point on a number of ways that the pandemic has has made people prepare a bit better and be a bit more streamlined in their approaches.
0: So one of the things that uh, I'm interested in chatting to or kind of to include as part of the kind of postgraduate early career research part of the podcast is Kind of other opportunities to be involved in the academic community beyond just writing the thesis. Um, You were obviously, you were heavily involved in organising the BSH annual conference in Worcester in 2017, where I think we briefly met for like the briefest of moments for the first time. Um, What was that like? Would you recommend that kind of experience for others getting involved with organising conferences?
1: Yeah absolutely I th- I'm glad you've raised that and I'm glad that on this podcast that will hopefully be as as important um, as the conversation about my actual research um, the lived experience of uh, taught masters, masters by research or, or PhD doctoral students um, and I think that Developing skills as you go along throughout the process um, must be balanced with the completion of your thesis. There are many schools of thought on that um, and I'm saying that as a personal perspective. Um, I drove my supervisor's crackers with that sometimes (laughs) and was often told to just focus on the thesis which I do take but I'm a real advocate of taking on other opportunities that develop your networks, develop your own skills and develop opportunities for the future. So in 2017 or prior to that when uh, the University of Worcester and one of my supervisors had negotiated to host um, the annual conference, um, it was it was kind of a, a no-brainer for me to get involved um, and it, it taught me a bit more about um, the values of the, the society and the sort of the, the behind the curtain of the society and what goes on in terms of the governance, And some of the decision making, but then also obviously the experience of putting on a a multi-day conference. I'd put on day conferences prior to that, but the experience of a multi-day conference and working with some of the professional services to deliver that um, was really fruitful and and gives you really tangible knowledge and skills. So, for example, I'm writing up postdoctoral fellowship applications at the moment and you have to have budgets in there. And my experience of organising conferences or or travelling to conferences is is budget skills, which some people might take for granted as as a skill, um, but I think sometimes PhD students forget about (laughs) things like that. Um, So I'm a a huge advocate of additional experiences um, and beyond academic conferences. uh, One thing I've said to a couple of people along the way is to always reach out to non-academic societies or non-academic conferences that would be useful and and offer your services in inverted commas such as producing um, a podcast or producing a blog um, or doing the social media for an event in order to be able to um, go to the event for a reduced rate or for in fact for free Um, and my sort of tactic of that uh, led me to a number of different ways during my PhD to access Um, people that I wanted to interview uh, but also to be able to view how um, sort of people worked outside of academia as well so you can use a a number of your skills to your advantage to sort of um, make opportunities for yourself.
0: Yeah that's really that's really great advice and I know what you mean that you know some people think you should just complete the thesis and write that but like you're a bit of an advocate of trying to dip your hand into doing all sorts of things i mean from my point of view i i've been juggling doing my phd part-time while being a teacher in the sixth form college so sometimes sometimes it's not always possible to have done those sorts of things but because i presented my research quite early on um at nash i think i was about five months into my phd which is based on my master's but um because i presented early on i started to meet people and then you get a Should we co author something together and those kinds of opportunities that kind of come up? So, I wasn't when that opportunity to co author an article came up, I wasn't I didn't have enough time to write something myself because of juggling everything. But those opportunities to work with other people um, means you're not having to do all the work yourself, you've got a support network, and you're starting to meet other people. Um, So, any kind of connections and things like that, I think are definitely kind of worth pursuing. I love your idea about the conferences and offering your skills. That seems like a like a really really great piece of uh, piece of advice. Um, so obviously, I suppose one of the things that people coming up to complete their PhD are thinking about is what they're going to do post PhD life. So, have you got any advice for kind of finding academic opportunities or even non academic opportunities? And because um, obviously you're working in academic stuff and non academic, so how do you go about trying to find those opportunities any any kind of words of wisdom?
1: Yep uh, the the two points I probably would make on on that front is uh, going into sort of the final stages of your PhD Um you either need to cultivate time which I appreciate in whatever circumstance you're in can be tricky to thinking about future-proofing those sort of first six to 12 months post PhD So whether that's dedicating time to applying for jobs or applying for fellowships or seeing how you can make things work um, to to dedicate time after your PhD, because it can become a little bit of a cliff um, and you can either ignore it and get on with life, or you can almost feel quite lost and overwhelmed because you've not thought about the after-fiver celebratory drink or commiseration drink. And the sort of two tangible things I did there uh, was I have maintained a blog and a website throughout my PhD, which I kind of adapted as I was coming to the end and sort of instead of the PhD defining me and me being a doctoral student, it was changing my own identity to being an individual so that's why I was chuffed with you introducing me as this Dr Verity Postlethwa because that that's now my professional identity so having a sort of a space that's connected to you know LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, whatever, pick your poison on the, the platforms of cultivating work opportunities I think having who you are rather than it being your thesis that defines you was quite important to transition out um, and into into different pathways for me um, and then the second thing is universities um, have some really interesting routes for how if you're not being paid for them as a full-time or part-time member of staff how they can offer you in-kind benefits um, so of course you know you can attempt to get a lectureship or a full-time post-doc or a sessional lecturing but if if for whatever reason you're not successful or that doesn't suit your circumstance which I fit that category. Um, I have a couple of universities that I'm affiliated to that give me in-kind benefits um, and a network and resource to still carry on my academic work without having to to commit Um, either party having to commit. So for example I'm part of a research associate at the um, SOAS University of London um, Japan Research Centre and that's um, so I can access their library um, I can have a soas.ac.uk um, email um, and cultivate this book project. So I'm working alongside a full-time member of staff at SOAS but I'm a research associate capacity and I can benefit from some of their administrative support. Um, their sort of brand and identity, some of their insurance <laughs> in case things go wrong. So there's a bit of protection for both parties and it's, it's mutually beneficial. Um, and I had a bit of a Google before this podcast and I didn't realise because um, I'm, a, I'm a devil for looking at different networks. But the Institute of Historical Research offer associate fellowships with a very similar sort of in-kind benefit system and so if someone's listening to this now and is thinking okay well I don't have a relationship with someone at SOAS that's useless for me, it's actually not because that this type of research associate or associate fellowship status is really uh, common practice among societies or institutions. So the Institute of Historical Research um, has a really clear document on what the eligibility is, what they offer, what they expect, the deadlines on applications and and things like that are really useful for people to stay affiliated and stay in touch with some of the benefits of of being part of a university. So those are just a couple of things, Um, developing your own identity and brand post PhD, sounding a bit like a a corporate monkey right there, Um, but also developing ways to stay uh, in official capacities uh, with universities, for me, has been been important to carry on in my sort of uh, mercenary pathway.
0: Fab. Um, I think that kind of covers most of the stuff. I mean, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to talk about your research and kind of how it's relevant, and you're still kind of working on that. And then also to speak about a lot of issues that can be really relevant to um, to postgrads and early career researchers. So thanks ever so much for for joining us. Um, and just a reminder to everyone that, you know, we talked about the impact of the pandemic. Just a reminder, folks, that there, there is a new COVID-19 research grant for postgraduate and ECR members. So if there is something that you, that you need, it could be a book, it could be access to some kind of um, digitised archive, anything like that, do consider applying. We've got that money to, to help people out, so do apply. Um, and again, if folks, if you want to be on the podcast and chat about your research, um, just drop me an email. Uh, find it on the BSSH website Um, and take care everyone and I will bring you another one of these in the near future.